0: Morrissey was in such a state about returning to the church that he only reluctantly allowed me to return to my room to fetch an overcoat. As such, I found myself feeling rather cold as we stood amongst the ruins of the Church of Orphans.
1: Thirteen, Pluddles. Thirteen. Mm, Yes, Morrissey? That cryptic advertisement features the number thirteen, and I can't help but feel it is the solution to whatever Archibald and Mericat, if indeed those are their real names, are attempting to seek.
0: His lordship flung himself onto the paved floor of the church, counting everything he saw.
1: Thirteen paving slabs? No.
0: Thirteen apeses? No. Thirteen. Uh, Morrissey? He looked up at me. Yes? Morrissey, remind me how many apostles there were. Well,
1: Pluddles, that is a curious question. I believe scholars are divided on the exact number given the list of named apostles conflicts with the commonly assumed amount of them. You see, in the Gospel of… I was
0: not anxious to hear yet another sermon on Morrissey's heterodox views on the Christian creed. Be that as it may, Morrissey, but how many are there commonly assumed to be?
1: Twelve, Pluddles.
0: Surely you know that. Then do you not find the frieze of the apostles above the altar a little suspicious? Morrissey leapt to his feet and dusted himself off.
1: Pluddles, I have already counted the number of apostles, there are 12, which is the commonly assumed number, even if it doesn't match the list of named apostles in the four gospels.
0: But, Morrissey, do you not think they are arranged above the altar a little oddly? Morrissey stared at the frieze, tapping his temple with an index finger.
1: Pluddles, I have been a fool whilst you have seen things precisely. Yes, this is the secret of the Church of Orphans.
0: Morrissey clambered onto the altar to get closer to the frieze.
1: I had not noticed that our Apostles were not strictly centred with the aisle. It is as if, as you have correctly noted, there should be a 13th Apostle on the left-hand side.
0: Sinister. Yes, Pluddles, very sinister indeed. His Lordship pressed where the 13th Apostle could have been, and the stone, with some noise, sunk into the wall. Then, behind us, we heard one of the paving slabs Morrissey had been lying on drop open.
1: Pluddles, whatever Stickle's final secret was, it lies beneath.
0: The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. Brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Dentith. Welcome to the podcasters' guide to the conspiracy. I am Josh Edison. They are Dr. M Dentith. We we
1: are socially distancing.
0: Are socially distancing, but 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 only by a little bit in Auckland together in the same room. And I
1: mean, it's Magic. basically virtue signalling because we were French kissing before, but well, now we are. Yes, we're looking distance. All about the appearances, you know, to make yes. sure that you know at home you should also socially distance and not French kiss your co-host.
0: No, yes, I I licked every doorknob on the way here. Not a euphemism. Well, it is. Well, it's it's not a (laughs) a euphemism, it's a lie. Um, Now... Uh, Yeah, I I suppose for our overseas viewers, maybe the old bit bit of the old COVID update, I suppose, here in New Zealand. So Auckland is now out of its temporary lockdown, but into a less severe lockdown where we're still supposed to be responsibly socially distancing and...
1: We could have eight more people in this room. We could, but that's it.
0: That's it. Yep. No G- uh, gatherings of ten people, uh, and uh, an interesting change from last time. They've made mask wearing mandatory, but only on public transport at the moment. But it's it's strongly encouraged elsewhere.
1: It is, and that means there are people engaging in mask related pr- protests.
0: Yep, a little bit, a little bit. There was one fella on the news the other day who sort of went on his Instagram or whatever about how he didn't wear his, his didn't wear him and his partner didn't wear their masks on the train and someone sort of had a word with them and kind of said, You should wear your mask, dude and he said, Were well, you gonna arrest me? And said, No, but wear your mask But then but then he was all like, Aha, you see, know your rights. They can't make me wear a mask. Though that's not the attitude of a three year old. No.
1: Mm. No, I must say because I'm involved in a project at the moment looking at COVID-19 disinformation and conspiracy theories in the build-up to the election here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, I'm of the firm opinion that our she'll be right attitude of we'll oh, talk to the people first and... And tell them they're doing wrong and then eventually we'll find them, once they've done it two or three times, is the wrong attitude. Because it only requires one person to be asymptomatic with COVID-19, not wearing a mask on public transport, for that to be a vector for infection for a large number of people. So in that situation, I think instant fines all the time.
0: Well, yes, yeah. I mean, there's been there's been as with anything, there's been a fair bit of political calculus. I mean, people are always sort of saying, "Oh, it shouldn't be a political decision," but it's a decision being made by politicians. Surely it's political by definition. And in, in, in that, we went down to this level when, like previously, we had the big the big four week massive lockdown of the whole country, and we came out of that when there had been sort of zero. New cases for several days and so on. That we're still getting cases popping up at the moment, but um, I, I think people fairly rightly assumed that if they carried on the lockdown too long, then people would start acting like dicks anyway. So it's a bit of a bit of a balancing act between what would be the best, most sensible thing to do in, t- in medical terms, and what's going to piss people off the least and have least least risk of a backlash.
1: Yes, there's a calculations which. In a few years' time, we'll be probably looking back upon with the benefit of hindsight mm. and going, maybe we should have gone harder for another week in lockdown, or maybe we should have gone harder for three more weeks in lockdown.
0: Mm. Yes, we'll just have to see. But anyway, so that's where we are. We can go out, we can do things. We should just probably be wearing a mask while we do it, but we don't have to unless we're on a train. But we, but then we might get away with it anyway. But we should. We should. Yes. We should. Now, um, uh, Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre
1: Indeed, another Another exciting episode Where we'll be delving into the work of an author We've covered several times before on this illustrious podcast Mm.
0: Uh, An author who, who you could possibly describe in two words As both resilient and ubiquitous
1: It's very true and has many thoughts Both after and
0: before? Before what? The chime? The chime. Nice rescue. Yes, so today we are looking at Afterthoughts on Conspiracy, Resilience and Ubiquity by one Lee Basham. Now this one I assume is another chapter from the book. From the Conspiracy Theories The Philosophical Debate?
1: It is indeed. No, in so yes, we are now looking at Lee's contribution to Conspiracy Theories The Philosophical Debate as edited by David Cody and published by Asgate Ash? Ashgate? Ash? Not not
0: ass not as in, gate.
1: Asgate. Yeah. Asgate. Asgate?
0: The gate that you let your asses in and out of. It's true.
1: And not asses, no. as maybe Americans might say. Mm. Back
0: in 2006. Mm. So, um, this continues as, as we're pretty much used to by now the, the whole point counterpoint debate kind of thing. We had Brian Keeley said something, Lee Basham reacted to that, Brian reacted to that, and now Lee's reacting straight on back again.
1: No, you forget about Steve reacting to well, stuff. Yeah, well. And
0: then, yes, then mixed in, Steve reacted to stuff, and so there's the, everyone's reacting to everyone. It's positively, positively filthy.
1: It's quite reactive.
0: Mm. Um, so an- another fairly short one, um,
1: only about two and a half thousand words. Yes, but there's a lot packed
0: in there. There really is. Um, so we know, So obviously, in, as in all the cases of these conspiracy theory masterpiece theater ones, this is something with which you're intimately familiar, but with which I was re- uh, reading the first for the first time. Um, and yeah, rereading reading this, it did seem to sort of solidify the idea that where you sort of had the likes of Brian Keeley taking a, a an epistemological or a look at the epistemology of conspiracy theories themselves, and then you have Steve Clark, who rather than doing that, sort of went off to look at the psychology of conspiracy theorists. And Lee Basham really does seem to be most into the eye, look, looking at sort of society, the world in which these conspiracy theories occur and in which these conspiracy theorists operate. In which case, he's basically
1: doing social epistemology at this stage. So, looking at the situation of epistemic knowers, such as ourselves, in communities of other knowers or epistemic agents. And so he's going, well, look, given the kind of societies we exist in, And given the kind of assumption expectations of the societies in which we exist, our knowledge is constrained or liberated, depending on what those assumptions are. And so we can't do conspiracy theory without thinking about actual conspiracies and the history of conspiracy in our polities.
0: Does this this social epistemology get applied to numerous other areas? How is that...?
1: I mean, so social epistemology basically is going away from the individualized epistemology that's kind of traditional in the Western canon of being focused on individual epistemic agents engaging in, well, how do I know X? Well, I know X because I've been justified, true belief, that, blah. And social epistemology goes, well, actually, hold on. A lot of our knowledge is constituted by social mores, social connections, Trust and the like and so to do epistemology you really do need to think about society as a whole and How that constrains or liberates you as an epistemic agent within that society? So it applies to basically everything so standpoint epistemology where you go well if I was a woman in the society How would this affect my ability to gain information, ends up being part of the social epistemology pantheon? So it applies to lots of different fields. You do the social epistemology of politics, the social epistemology of science, we start thinking about groups of scientific agents engaging in scientific inquiry there are limits to those inquiries depending on the kind of society in which you live social epistemology applies to everything well, John, it's good. everywhere josh mm. you're you're breathing it in now
0: yum now um, i guess we should start with the opening paragraph is it my turn it, Well, your
1: well i have said it's always your now, turn it's always
0: my turn okay <clears throat> so lee basham's paper afterthoughts on conspiracy theory resilience and ubiquity begins as follows Recent work in epistemology has tried to pinpoint adequate grounds for rejecting conspiracy theories as unwarranted, but little of it appears to succeed. What has emerged instead is that conspiracy theories turn out to be remarkably wily and resilient epistemic creatures. They are extremely difficult to discount. A primary concern is that contemporary philosophers have put far too much effort into trying to discredit conspiracy and intelligent attempts to identify it, instead of achieving a better appreciation of conspiracy and conspiracy theory's natural place in life, and then embracing a more honest respect for conspiracy's powerful potential in our world. A dismissive attitude toward conspiracy and its theory is to be expected, I suppose, from those in the grips of the official civil religion of Western free democracies, that we live in an open society consisting of mutually balancing centres of power governed by the informed will of impartial, compassionate citizen consumers. A dismissive attitude in attendant rationalisations is also natural for those surrounded by the economic ease and the securities of an affluent Western lifestyle. But I do not believe it is quite the best philosophical attitude. I suspect it is merely a comforting and ultimately negligent Mythology
1: Quite a lot of buzzwords there
0: mm. Quite a bit of um, he's, 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 he's nailing his colours to the Mast or the flagpole Or whatever it is you nail colours onto right there
1: And what are those colours Joshua?
0: Oh green Interesting choice mm. um, So He starts off basically addressing um, Brian keeley 's reactions to him So if you remember from Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition um, where he he finished by saying um, basically, uh, if one wishes to be malevolent on a global scale, why waste time and energy maintaining a conspiracy when history shows that one can get away with it in the open? Sort of sort of arguing against this I- this idea that. Um, society th- th- that Lee put forward—that sort of the world we live in is is a world in which conspiracies occur, and we can't don't have the sort of trust in social institutions. The so-called us.
1: pragmatic rejection.
0: Mm. Um, and Brian Alkidi said, "But you, yeah, but hang on, like look, look at these things that happened. The Holocaust happened. Uh, this, the, the, the Spanish Inquisition, witch trials, all sorts of things happened, and they didn't. And, and even where we." Um, where things happened a little bit in secret, like the Dunkirk landings in World War Two, they were they were secret to a point in terms of the details, but they still everybody knew that the attack was coming. They just weren't quite sure the exact details. So he basically said, you know, you don't you don't need to posit the, these grand overarching conspiracies because people, these malevolent, malevolent global. ones, because people are perfectly able of be cap- perfectly capable of being malevolent on a global scale, without the need for conspiracy. Um, And so Basham, nevertheless, uh, has a counter to that.
1: He does, which is to say, well, yes, we can accept that the Dunkirk landings were kind of signalled, even if elements were kept secret. We can expect the Spanish Inquisition. We can expect that people will do some fairly dreadful things in the open. But conversely, a lot of the planning of these dreadful things is done in secret, Because if you plan these dreadful things openly from the get-go, people are going to stop you. So we need to be talking about the prior stuff that gets us to those vile deeds. Although, I suppose, the Dunkirk landings really wasn't particularly vile at all.
0: Yes, no, the Holocaust was the one that gets brought up in the paper a bit.
1: You need to think about, well how did they get to the point where they could start acting in the open because that's the point we need to be talking about conspiracy
0: mm. yes indeed um, when, uh, when Keeley says why, why do you need to have a conspiracy when history shows you can get away with it in the open Lee basically says so that you can get away with it in the open um, yes, the Nazis weren't campaigning for day one on "we're going to do our best to exterminate the Jewish people," uh, although that may, you know, that was presumably Hitler's goal all along. Um, a, a lot of the preparation, you know, a, a lot of the initial planning happened in secret. And had they been completely open about it, they may very well not have got away with it. Um, and he also he uh, Lee Basham reacts to Brian Keeley's claim that um, it's a jump. You know, while while he's quite willing to accept that conspiracy theories do, yep, they are common. Low level ones, high level ones happen all the time. But he said, you know, there's a big jump from adultery and insider trading, with his examples, to global conspiracies. But then Lee Basham, again sticking with the Spanish Inquisition, talked about how well, yeah, but in, in that. You sort of had people being targeted for political ends or to intimidate and so on and that would sort of happen at a larger level but then sort of down into villages and then sort of possibly down at the level of family and so on and so the same thing that operates at a higher society level can operate at a smaller personal level anyway so possibly the distinction between the smaller scale of adultery Businesses insider trading and large-scale global malevolent conspiracies is not as important Which is
1: why he talks about the ubiquity of Conspiracy Mm. and notes it is important to keep before us the fact that far from being a nefarious fringe activity conspiracy and its theory are commonplace within the most profound personal experiences and commitments of billions of human beings far from a rarity Both conspiracy and its theory are fundamental modes of human cognition and have been for millennia. So this is Lee's claim that, look, part of the problem with this discussion of conspiracy and conspiracy theory is that we think these conspiracies are rare, and thus we can appraise them as if they are uncommon events. Lee counters that by going, well, look, actually... Conspiracies happen all the time from the organization of surprise parties to large-scale political malfeasance It's all a spectrum of conspiracy there and people theorize about these conspiracies all the time If you think that your friends are organizing a surprise party and they are keeping it from you You are theorizing about a conspiracy In the same way that if you think that the government is keeping something from you about their COVID-19 response, you are also theorizing about a conspiracy. Both cases are commonplace, and we should recognize that people have these suspicions all the time, and it's perfectly normal.
0: Mm. And then he makes um, a slightly eye-opening move, and that my eyes were open while I read it, because that's how reading works. You should um, have got the audio book. Well, yes, not 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 available. I Then you could my have said my eyes
1: flipped open when mm. I heard the following words.
0: Uh, well, Lee basically says that um, organised theistic religion is kind of the ultimate conspiracy and one that has been with us for thousands of years and he'd probably before recorded human history. Time you put in. Don don mm. Uh Because he he describes traditional theistic religion as any belief that accepts one. The world is the creation of a morally superior, powerful supernatural intelligence, or God. Two, the world has suffered the introduction of a power, evil, or some other highly undesirable causal property, such as illusion or maya. Um, Three, this power has a supernatural dimension. Supernatural intelligences exercise it on their own and via human beings. Four, the creator actively resists the efforts of these agents of evil, on its own and through human beings. 5. Both these good and evil intelligences are presently active in our world and influence many momentous personal and world events. And finally 6. Much, easily most, of their activity is intentionally hidden from the majority of humanity. So, sounds like he's describing parties working together in secret uh, for a common goal.
1: And indeed, this is a common refrain in the sceptical literature to moving outside of philosophy into largely American scepticism. And the notion that organised religion is kind of a scam designed to milk or grift its followers. And the idea that actually believing in these higher powers operating behind the scenes does seem a lot like subscribing to an official conspiracy theory that it's okay to believe in.
0: Mm. And then he sort of goes on to say, okay, well, if you change God, replace God in his previous definition with um, sort of forces of democracy or America and evil with communism, then you have the sorts of conspiracy theories that the John Birch Society trafficked in. Um, If you... Replace communism with Islamism Then you have plenty of the anti-Muslim type conspiracy theories Which we still see plenty of to this very day
1: And indeed, because this was written back in 2006 Lee is making particular reference to the US Attorney General John Ashcroft Who was the Attorney General under the W. Bush administration That talked about a vague Al-Qaeda conspiracy theory Which was of course part of the rationale for the invasion to both Afghanistan and also
0: Iraq. Mm. Um, So he's basically, so so he then says um, theists of the nature he described are conspiracy theorists. If they are right, the essential trajectory of the world is a conspiracy. So he's basically sort of rounding out by saying that conspiracy is is baked into the very fabric of society um, and has been for a, a decent chunk of human history.
1: Now what's interesting about this as we will see in a few weeks time, there's a more recent paper by a friend of the show, Brian Al-Keeley about God as the ultimate conspirator Ooh! So we've got, we'll have we be returning back to this interesting tangent about religion very soon
0: mm. But for now, let's turn as Lee Basham does uh, at this point to um, looking at what Steve Clarke had to say You'll remember his talk of um, degenerative um, research theories uh, in that a, a kind degenerative... of
1: Lakatosian mo- mode. Um, so, doing the philosophy of science from the point yeah. of Imre Lakatos, as opposed to, say, your Thomas Kuhn.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and and you recall his his um, he doesn't go into so much of the psychology of it, but more more the the way that Clark treats uh, it in, in a sort of yeah, philosophy of science mode. Um, and has a look at what he says. I mean, first of all, he makes the point that it isn't quite clear, and I believe Clark uh, said this himself in his own paper, when a research theory becomes degenerative, in the same way that we've seen problems with Brian L. talking about his, his mature, unwarranted conspiracy theories. When exactly is it mature? Um,
1: Something I'm still struggling with with my own work with respect to COVID 19, given that COVID 19 conspiracy theories are relatively new given they emerged at the earliest back in november of last year or most likely actually around about march of this year and yet i'm labeling a whole bunch of those as being unwarranted conspiracy theories because they appear to be quite mature and yet no good evidence is pre- is presenting so it is a rather vague vague mm. metric
0: although as as i think you said and i know I've, I've heard joe skinsky say um a lot of these quote-unquote new conspiracy theories do tend to sort of base themselves on existing ones that have been around for ages and ages and just sort of piggyback on, you know, just just put a new veneer over the...
1: Yes, so there are certain archetypes you see repeated again and again and again where the only new thing is going, oh, what crisis can we apply this particular claim of conspiracy to? Oh, in this particular case, it's COVID-19. It was 5G earlier on. Before that, it was 4G radio signals causing cancer. Before that, it was probably the radio. Before that, it was reading. Well, before reading, it was etc., mm. etc. Et
0: yes. Uh, but anyway, that's that's sort of more of a side point, really. Um, he goes on to say that um, treating conspiracy theories in the same way that you do philosophy of science is a problem Uh, in particular, quoting here, the real problem with appealing to it in the context of conspiracy theory is that while nature does not presumably fake the data essential to our physical theories, in the case of our social theories, people do, which is a point that's come up before and I cannot for the life of me remember where. Who first said that? That is Brian Alkely. Ah, well, there we go. Yes, so, I mean, it isn't, isn't, um, the, the two aren't entirely directly comparable because you don't, Part, part of the nature of conspiracy theories is that people are trying to hide themselves from you whereas you're, you would hope uh, that the object of a scientific study is meant to be just this permanent objective reality that you're trying to get to grips with. Um, so maybe that's, that's our first um, first suggestion that possibly we're off in the wrong direction. Um, and when he gets down to it, you sort of, actually, let's, let's just read the quote. The apparent degenerate status of a conspiracy theory, failure to be able to generate a great many new successful predictions and reliance on auxiliary hypothesis to maintain the theory, is exactly what a fairly well-constructed conspiracy would eventually leave investigators with. A closed door to additional investigation and a wealth of false leads and disinformation produced by the conspirators and those they influence in order to obscure the conspiracy. So we've only returned to the question, how do we distinguish good from bad conspiracy theories? And this is one that he sort of comes back to a bunch of times throughout the paper. We As we look at these things we're trying to sort of talk about conspiracy theories but then we end up just bottoming out and well okay then that there are good ones and bad ones and how do we tell the two apart which is not allegedly what these people were trying to figure out in the first place
1: no so he continues an answer to this question should determine when we take a positive or negative attitude towards a conspiracy theory not anything believed about conspiracy theorists
0: as a group Mm. Which sounds an awful lot like a particularist viewpoint.
1: Indeed, and very soon we'll be looking at the two people who coined the notion of particularism and generalism in this field, which is Bunting and Taylor. Their work will be coming up very soon. Mm. And it's a fascinating paper for the sheer fact that it's, it's flawed, and yet, its central contribution, which is talking about generalism versus particularism, is very important for labeling a whole bunch of practices. And the two authors themselves have completely left the game. Huh. So they wrote this this very important, although I say flawed, paper about how we appraise, how we talk about conspiracy theory and its ana- analysis. And I don't even know whether they're aware of how well they're cited now.
0: Ooh. Oh well, another one to look forward to. Um, yeah, so this is where, where Lee Basham finds himself um, pointing out that when we try to evaluate conspiracy theories in general um, we end up instead having to distinguish between particular ones because we know that some conspiracies happened. We we can look at the history of, of the world of all these conspiracies that were real that people had theories about and it turned out to be true. Um, and we want to accept or reject. If we're taking the particular viewpoint, we want to accept or reject these things based on the evidence. But as he just said, a lot of the time the evidence is the thing we don't actually have full access to.
1: And indeed, is the kind of thing that conspiracy theorists are concerned about—that there are things we're not being told we ought to know about.
0: Mm. And so then Lee comes back to I think his point that he's made in his previous papers We should acknowledge the implications of this lack A studied agnosticism about many of the current conspiracy theories That proliferate around the globe um, and When I read that I did have to wonder though Is, is like in the past that we were interested in, in epistemological warrant um, So not necessarily are these things true But should we believe them? Mm.
1: Whether they're plausible mm. to believe given the available evidence
0: And um and so, in the previous papers, where, where Brian Keeley has been reacting to his views and so on, he's made a point of saying yeah, the, the distinguishing between truth and warrant. We don't, we, we we may not be able to tell if a conspiracy theory is true, but we maybe we can say whether or not it's warranted, um, and also the difference between whether it's possible and warranted. Because again, in the previous, he said, "Well, yes, it's possible." that anything, any, any any giant malevolent global conspiracy you want to name could be happening, but we're not interested in possibility, we're interested in warrant. And is, is Lee talking about warrant here, or has he moved away from it a bit?
1: So, I think part of the problem here, and this is part of my reappa- reappraisal of Brian's paper is that actually there are multiple ways of talking about warrant within philosophy, which is, is it justifiable to believe versus is it justifiable to believe given the available evidence we have at a time? And I think Lee is concerned with the first form, which is, if you don't have enough evidence, then you should just be agnostic. Whilst Brian, I think, is more concerned with the second sense, which is actually we kind of have to make decisions given the available evidence we have. So we can be worried that there's evidence out there we can't see, but we can't do anything about it. We simply have to make decisions about whether we think something is plausible, given what we know now, and an acknowledgement of our limitations. So I think there's a disjunct here between the two ways that they're talking about warrant in an epistemological way. But I do have to ask a very important question here, Josh. Mm -hmm. Are you wearing Captain America's shoes?
0: No, they just happen to I'm wearing cons I'm wearing converse shoes And the symbol of converse shoes of course is, a, is the star And it just so happens that these shoes Are, are oh, um,
1: red, white and blue Well, they're, with they're, a white wh- star on the side They're
0: white and blue with a little bit of red on them But not really Captain America shoes They're just you do, you,
1: you do know he's dead Have you stolen Captain America's shoes? Uh,
0: in, in, in what continuity are we talking about? I don't know. I don't watch Marvel films. No, well, there you go. I thought you were talking about Chris Evans is dead. He hasn't got... The the Rock's got COVID. But Chris Evans hasn't, as far as I know.
1: And Black Panther's dead.
0: What the hell is up with that? Chadwick Boseman, 43 years old. Also, actually, so even
1: though we don't... We normally get to the pop culture stuff at the end. So there's actually been a, a kind of interesting conspiracy about that for a while, in that it's been fairly obvious that the scribes at the MCU have been looking at making one of the other main characters from Black Panther, the eventual replacement to Black Panther. And people online would going, oh, Chadwick Boseman must be really, really angry. He's only got to make one film. And they're already looking for his successor. I mean, it's just, it's, it's woman's lip gone mad, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And now everyone's being quiet because people are going, no, maybe the MCU... We're looking for a replacement for Chadwick Boseman because Chadwick Boseman was dying of cancer, mm. and presumably he wasn't thinking, "Oh, what's really annoying? You're replacing me." He was probably actually going, "If I live long enough, we can do a film to pass the mantle on," and it turns out that
0: hasn't happened. Oh yes, very, very unfortunate.
1: Yeah, very sad, very mm. sad,
0: most sad. Uh, but anyway, returning to the paper, we're, we're nearly at the end here, anyway. Um, so he he um Lee basham uh, not chadwick Boseman. not chadwick bozeman no um, goes to talk in favor uh, of a general definition of what counts as a conspiracy as i mean uh, just just sort of rounding out his views here at the bottom um, and he says something which was quite interesting to me uh, this uh, paragraph near the end of his paper says. We also need to be cautious about unduly limiting the notion of a conspiracy theory, perhaps in the service of our own political expectations. It is perfectly general. It is a functional term, a term that identifies a phenomenon in terms of how it works. Conspiracy theory works to explain various events in particular ways. Whatever does this, regardless of who offers it to us, is a conspiracy theory. For this reason, conspiracy theories can be both obscure and utterly mainstream. In in direct opposition to, what was it, David Cody's one previously. Um, And then finishes by saying the current popular and official understanding of the attack on the United States World Trade Center is a conspiracy theory its main explanatory elements are conspirators and their conspiracies it is hard to imagine any explanation of this event that isn't which is a point we've made over and over again in this podcast is that the first time somebody made that point
1: in philosophy yes
0: Mm, well there you
1: go it may have been made by non philosophers elsewhere but yes, in philosophy, this is the first time it's been written down.
0: Mm, well, there we go. So, um, you, you you heard it here first. Only you didn't. But Lee wrote it here first.
1: You heard it here fourteen years after it was written.
0: Mm. Um. And so there we go. So uh, the next bit in my notes is the conclusion to all of this. Is there anything you'd like to say before we get there?
1: No, I mean, well, no, but actually I've got something else to say. So yes, and I should just say nothing and Mm. then complete the circuit. What is interesting about what's going on here is this does appear to be the first paper to go, look, here's our theory of what counts as a conspiracy theory. The only way to sort between good and bad examples of conspiracy theories is looking at the evidence. Isn't it terrible that we might not have all the evidence we would like, but at the same time, we can only judge whether a conspiracy is good or bad on the evidence? We cannot walk into this debate with assumptions about whether conspiracy theories are prima facie, good or bad. We can only engage in evidentialism about them.
0: Mm. Um, so Lee Basham sums it up by saying, Taking all this to heart, conspiracy's murderous preparatory history, the human universi- universality of conspiracy and its theory, the current epistemic resilience of conspiracy theory, we should not be surprised when accusations of conspiracy, even global, arise. Nor should we be immediately dismissive. It would be surprising if such a powerful and commonplace cognitive template failed to sometimes animate our lives in even great stretches of human history. This, if anything, is the proper attitude for those whom Clark calls intellectuals. My own experience is rather different than his, however, because in my own experience, it frequently is.
1: Now, that's actually a dig at Clark for Clark trying to justify the suspicion that intellectuals have about conspiracy theories, because Basham is going... Should we even think it's worth justifying in the first place? As in, is this, as Charles Pigton would call it, just a modern superstition?
0: Mm. And there we go, yes, yeah, so this, this, one, this one did seem quite sort of significant to read, I guess. It seemed to, to really um, set up some of the quite fundamental um, concepts, I suppose, in conspiracy theory theory.
1: What you could call it is the end of the plot arc for the first season of Conspiracy Theory Theory in Philosophy.
0: Yes, that, that would be a very good. I thought you were going to say seminal and we're going to have a good snigger like we did about the old, I in, mean, in the I old times. I mean, the
1: old Which times would, as in two or three as in, ago. as in a few
0: months ago, yeah. Um, yes, so another, another interesting little read there but I assume we have uh, uh, a new, interesting, different places to go.
1: Well, the next major piece I think we're going to read is a piece by Charles Pigden. Ah. And it's quite Shakespearean. And I mean that literally. It's quite Shakespearean.
0: I look forward to it then. You can look forward to it in two weeks' time, I suppose. You next can. W- next week. Do we know what we're doing next? L- what did, last week, we did one of those. We haven't talked about this yet, have we? We should talk about that Moments. So I can't remember what it was. Was it Loose Change? We were talking about something, said that's the thing we've never actually devoted an episode to.
1: It'll be in the bonus episode because, of course, last week was the David David Farrier interview. Yes. And yes, and we we always plan to make a note of... And we never do. So if you're listening to this podcast, and remember what we promised to do last week, please do get in contact with us to tell us what we promised to do so we actually get round to doing it, so we don't break the promise, mm. because the problem is that then requires us to go back and listen to our own work. And I'm frankly reluctant to do that at the best of times. So.
0: Uh, I usually do, just to see how it turned out, but... Maybe but your I task is My to end. find out what we I'm promised to I'm almost certain it was loose change, because we keep talking about it, but we've never actually gone through it in detail and everything. Because uh, I, I brought it up a few weeks ago when I said uh, it was 2007, which is why, which is when things really kicked off. And probably Josh, why it's, hasn't...
1: 20, it's 2020, 13 yes. years have passed, we've got COVID-19 if you don't know about COVID-19, you're in for a wild ride.
0: Well, you can catch me up later. but uh, and, and then you said, when I said Loose Change came out in 2007, you said, which edition of that was that? And I said, oh, I yeah, don't know. Did, yeah, we did, But then I looked back and, OK, yes, 2007 was like the third edition. 2005 was when the very first edition of it came out.
1: OK, so it turns out it wasn't Loose Change that we promised to do in the previous episode. Please get in contact with us to tell us what else we're meant to be do- mm. doing. As our social secretaries.
0: Exactly. So next week, we might talk about loose change or something else entirely. I don't well, actually, know. next
1: week's liable to be another interview.
0: Oh, we've got one teed up, have you? We've
1: got two teed Ooh. up. We've got okay. a Joe Yusinsky and a Brian Alkely. Joe
0: Usinski must be sick of talking to people by now, mustn't he? It's
1: well, actually, so the shop. I'm, I want to talk to Joe about polling.
0: Ah, right, because now I did see, who was it? Someone was linking today about some other survey that reckoned only 14% of Americans hadn't heard of QAnon and that it was, was uh, it seemed to say, almost the exact opposite of what some of Joe's Ooh, surveys said. Where was said. that, was, where was I, that uh, It was probably on Twitter, which is... is was,
1: it linked, was it sent to us or did you just see it?
0: No, I just it? saw someone talking about it on Twitter. It was probably something David Farrier linked down. to. I'll have a look, yes that would be interesting
1: It would Now, what is also interesting is the patron bonus content that we give to our patrons Who may or may not be acting as our social secretaries at this point in time mm. Not this particular point in time, just this point in time So this week we'll be looking at, well, a story about QAnon mm. Which is Fancy a counter that. to a story about QAnon we told last week We'll be continuing our investigation into the poisoning of Alexei Navalny.
0: Navalny. Navalny.
1: Navalny. Navalny. I
0: think. I think.
1: Peter yes. We'll be looking at even more Russian interference in the American election. Oh, that's wacky Russians. I know. And then we'll be talking about how Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, can see demons.
0: Yes, that is a thing we will talk about.
1: There'll probably be a reference to his appearance in news radio.
0: Mm. I, I don't see how we can stop it quite and frankly. And Babylon 5. I uh, never watched Two of my favourite
1: shows ruined by Scott Adams being in them.
0: Ruins a strong word, but yes, certainly no, tainted. I, I,
1: I stand by it, ruined. Okay.
0: Um, so if you're a patron, uh, stick around and you'll hear some of that when you listen to the bonus episode. Uh, if you're not a patron and you'd like to be, then, then just be one. Yeah. Go to patreon.com and look, look us up. We're there. One dollar a month is all it requires. Mm. Um, but if you're not a patron but you're still listening to this, thank you, thank you as well because you're our audience and that's just peachy.
1: Yep, we appreciate you. Mm. Just not as much as our patrons.
0: No, no. Won't be looking your doorknobs, that's for sure.
1: Not a euphemism. Yes, it's a euphemism.
0: It's a bit of a. It goes both ways, just like your mum. Now, uh, I think we're at the end of the <laughs> my episode. My mother, who's,
1: up, who's upstairs,
0: and also downstairs. <laughs> I don't know. A, don't, 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 don't tease out my sexual dysphemisms.
1: You just, heard me. Yeah, no, sorry. I've just got S Club Sevens. Don't stop in my head. Oh, okay. Don't stop. Yeah, ba-do-ba.
0: Uh, I thought didn't they have this? Yeah, well, they also did.
1: Don't stop moving to that okay. funky, funky. Date. See, I,
0: I never got into the S Club Seven, not even at the time. So I'm afraid I'm not hip to their jive.
1: Oh, you missed out on looking at Bradley. Go, mm, Bradley.
0: Mm. Anyway, let's let, let's leave them with that image of Bradley. Mm, Bradley. Mm, Bradley. Uh, and until next week, I will say goodbye,
1: and I'll say Bradley. Bradley. You've been listening to The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy starring Josh Addison and Dr. M.R. Extended which is written, researched, recorded and produced by Josh and M. You can support the podcast by becoming a patron via its Podbean or Patreon campaigns. And if you need to get in contact with either Josh or M you can email them at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or check their Twitter accounts, Mikey Fluids and Conspiracism. Remember, Soylent Green is Meeple's.
0: Redly. Was he the blonde one?
1: No, he was the black British one. Right. See, For God's I, I
0: know none of this. Medieval. You're so racist.